um, and then you could get it. Uh, we're behind because of the snow day. Um, so what we're going to do is um, spend today and Wednesday still doing English Romanticism. Thursday we'll have section, and in section uh, we can start discussing Jane Eyre. Um, you should read, as it's a page turner, you should read as much as you can of Jane Eyre for section on Thursday, but um, at any rate, the first half. Um, and we will um, talk about Jane Eyre Thursday and um, next Monday. Um, and then we'll be caught up, and that will be great. Um, I tried uh, Xeroxing um, the intimations out for those of you who didn't get the email in time and didn't bring in your books and are um, just doing the wrong thing in every other way that undergraduates do. Um, it's all good. So uh, the Xerox machine decided to be persnickety, but um, here at any rate are bits of... <laughs> the intimations of it, um, and there are not enough of them, and um, pass it around to anyone who wants it. If you have a copy, um, don't do it. We're going to try to zip through the intimations ode, and um, it's, in, it's in the book that you're supposed to have, it's in the um, email that I sent you, and it's in um, fragments here. Um, so what we were saying on... Um, Thursday about the intimations. It's just one sheet. Just one sheet. Not two sheet. Wait, these look so different. I know, they do. <laughs> yeah, it's back in... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's not, it's not my fault. You're probably too young for it's not my fault, but that's what the Apple computers used to tell you when they crashed. They would say, it's not my fault. <laughs> and you would say, well, that's lucky. Um, these were pre-Siri days. Okay, so um, you, don't, you don't need two sheet, just one sheet. Um, an old joke one person got. Okay, two people got. Um, so um, what we were talking about on Thursday was the um, uh, urgency with which I was... Um, um, hoping that you would get yourself to like the intimation zone. Um, part of the part of the reason for talking about that is that it is an aspect and a really interesting and important um, aspect of literary theory, and that's part of our brief in this class. Um, partly, it's that the intimation zone itself is about um, the urgency of trying to get um, of the speaker of Wordsworth, the speaker who is Wordsworth. Um, more or less Wordsworth, trying to get himself um, to find powerful and valuable something which is and feels to him like the loss of power and of value. Um, so we talked before about Wordsworth in the lyrical ballads, and Coleridge as well, but we haven't talked um, about Coleridge, um, in the lyrical ballads, um, using the natural language of natural men as he um, calls it, and talking about human experience. Um, in the intimations of the human experience he talks about is his own experience. And the thing to know about the intimations of is that the first four stanzas were a dead end for Wordsworth. That is, he started writing this poem and he stopped because the poem was not doing um, for him what he wanted it to do. I'm going to repeat that. It was not doing for him what he wanted it to do. Um, and the reason that's important is that Wordsworth and um, romantic poetry in general 
is poetry which tries to do, do which tries to do something for the poet. That is to say that our sense of poetry is coming out of expressive need. That um, what Wordsworth calls the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. Um, but the modern sense, which is that um, a poet needs to write, needs to say those things. That poetic need is a category that we understand. The need to turn grief or loneliness or bewilderment um, or alienation. Remember the lines from Stevens from This the Poem Springs, that we live in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves. That that fact, finding ourselves, living in a place that is not our own and much more not ourselves, um, causes poetry. Poetry is some sort of um, need which responds to a sense of alienation and loss, whether it's loss of love, loss of um, loss in terms of grief, um, mourning, um, loss in one way or another yields poetic need, and poetic need yields poems. Pope was not writing The Rape of the Lock because he somehow needed to write a witty poem about a card game that he didn't somehow need to parody Paradise Lost. Um, but Wordsworth did, um, not to parody Paradise Lost, although arguably that is what he's doing. Um, but he needed to do what he was doing. This is sometimes called a crisis lyric. So that term, again, a term from literary criticism and literary theory, is a crisis lyric. That's the lyrical part of lyrical ballads. A crisis lyric is a lyric that comes out of crisis, that there's some psychological crisis that a poet experiences. And um, if you're a poet, your experience of crisis um, may require you to write. But the crisis may also be that you find that you can't write. Those things often go together as they do in the intimations out. So he begins, we'll skip the epigraph, which um, was added later from another poem of Wordsworth. He added it. But go right to the beginning, and we'll try to do the whole thing, which will mean rapidly, but still. Um, there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, if you need to bring out an electronic device to do this, um, to look at it, if you don't have a copy, go ahead. Um, just don't be, don't be um, multitasking on Facebook and stuff. Um, there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of your turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day. The things which I have seen, I now can see no more. So notice that this is a first person um, solitary version of something that has something like the structure of a slumber did my spirit seal. So you recall a slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch, touch of earthly years. No motion, no, ah, no motion hath she now. So we go from past tense, there was a time, a slumber did my spirit seal, to when things seemed a certain way. The earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. No motion has she, hath she now becomes it is not now as it hath been of yore. 
So what he's describing here is what Emerson says we all experience. We'll be doing Emerson in a week or two. Um, Emerson has a great rhetorical question and an even greater rhetorical answer to that rhetorical question. What is the face that the world shows to every aspiring spirit, he asks, and his answer is strange to say, the fall of man. So everyone experiences in their own personal life, says Emerson, who knew Wordsworth and who is um, a follower of Wordsworth's, um, that every person in life experiences what the Bible describes and also what Paradise Lost describes, which is a sense that we were in Eden and we are no longer in Eden. We sang songs of innocence, but now we are experienced. There are those who um, do not merit misfortune, and then there are those like ourselves, all of those dichotomies. So here for Wordsworth, it's there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it hath been of yore, turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things that I have seen I now can see no more. And I just, part of the Xerox, if you got it and if it um, didn't screw up too badly, has the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost in it, where I point out for your edification that Wordsworth is getting the word celestial light from book three, uh, the, from the invocation of book three of Paradise Lost, um, where, remember, which is the um, invocation to light, and where he describes that light um, a couple of places in Paradise Lost, but the invocation of book three being one of them. He describes that light as celestial, and if you go, if you have it, if not, I'll just read it to you. The I revisit safe, says Milton. Um, Thee I revisit safe, having been down to hell, and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. This is around line 23. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn so thick a drop serene hath quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. Yet not the more cease I to wander where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny Hill. So notice Wordsworth picking that up in Meadow, Grove, and Stream. There was a time when Meadow, Grove, and Stream, to me, did seem apparelled in celestial light. Um, he is going back to Milton saying, even though I'm blind, I still go to where the muses haunt clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, smit with the love of sacred song but chief thee Zion and the flowery brooks beneath that wash thy hallowed feet and warbling flow, nighttime I visit. And then, nevertheless, he says, I no longer see the human face divine. I no longer see nature. It's gone. I am presented with a universal blank. Amazing word there. I am and for the Book of Knowledge Fair, presented with a universal blank. That's what he gets from the world, a universal blank of nature's works to me, expunged and raised, and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out, so much the rather thou celestial light shine inward. 
and the mind through all her powers irradiate. So that's Milton on his blindness, presented with a universal blank of nature's works. Wordsworth, who can see, is nevertheless saying that seeing now as an adult is like being blind. He used to see celestial light everywhere, but it is not now as it hath been of yore, turn where so e'er I may by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more. Examples. The rainbow comes and goes. And lovely is the rose. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth. So there's beauty everywhere, no question about it. But yet I know where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. His friend Coleridge, in a similar poem, influenced by this, summarizes a similar feeling as, I see, not feel, how beautiful they are. He can still see the beauty, but he doesn't feel what he's seeing. He sees that it's beautiful, but it doesn't matter to him. I see, not feel, how beautiful they are. So, yet I know where I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. The rainbow is beautiful, the rose is beautiful, the moon is beautiful. So what, is what Wordsworth is asking. And then he tries to find it beautiful again and to feel its beauty. Now, so we're back to the now. Now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song. So the birds are singing a joyous song as he's having this crisis. Now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound as to the tabers sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. So I'm, I alone feel this thought of grief. But then a timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. So I felt grief, but I said something about it in a poem. That's what the timely utterance would be. I had a thought of grief, I alone. I was estranged and alienated from the world. And to me alone there came a thought of grief, but a timely utterance gave that thought relief. I spoke my grief, and I produced an utterance, a poem, and I again am strong. It's all good, the cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. A beautiful, mysterious line. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. And all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity. And with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me. Let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy. So there are lambs outside. Um, there's a shepherd boy who is, um, who is shepherding them, who is caring for them. Um, and he sees the child and he's made happy. And he's partly made happy in the thought that the child does see the world full of celestial light. The child is still in that time. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. Now I look at the child of joy, and I say, yes, you have that, you innocent shepherd boy. 
And again, it's a little bit like Blakeian innocence, but he believes in it or wants to believe in it. The child might be singing to the lambs, little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed through the dales and o'er the mead. Might do the, the song of innocence called the lamb. So he goes on, ye blessed creatures. I have heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its coronal. So he sees the lambs. He sees the shepherd boy. He sees how joyful they are on this May morning. And he sees the heavens laughing with joy at the joy of all these things. And he gets himself to be happy. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its cardinal. The fullness of your bliss, I feel. I feel it all. So we go from, I see the heavens laugh with you, to I actually do feel it. I not only see, but I feel how beautiful this all is. Oh, evil day. If I were sullen while earth herself is adorning this sweet May morning and the children are culling on every side in a thousand valleys far and wide fresh flowers while the sun shines warm and the babe leaps up on his mother's arm. I hear, I hear, with joy I hear. And this is where he was trying to get to. And he almost gets there and then he fails with that engulfing but. So he is trying to work himself out of grief with another timely utterance. He feels a thought of grief, but he sees the beauty of nature, and he gets himself into, into the mind to celebrate it, and he writes a celebratory poem, and then we get to a but. But there's a tree of many, one. A single field which I have looked upon, both of them speak of something that is gone. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. Whither is fled the visionary gleam? Where is it now, the glory and the dream? So Blake you know that Wordsworth didn't know of and didn't read Blake, but Blake did read Wordsworth, and mainly he hated Wordsworth. Um, if you look, and these are great things to look at, you can find them on, on the net. If you look at Blake's marginalia to Wordsworth, he would buy Wordsworth's books and mark them up in the side, um, in the margins, and he would frequently write shit in the margins. Um, and there's one long passage of Wordsworth where he, Blake, as you know, is a great artist, where he um, does a drawing of a pair of squatting buttocks um, at the top of the page with little turds going down the margin right next to Wordsworth's writing because Blake thought it was so bad. To do both of them credit, it was a really bad passage in Wordsworth, and Blake was quite right to find it um, really bad. Um, but he said of this passage that this was perhaps the most moving thing he'd ever read, um, that this was absolutely, fantastically great, what Wordsworth is saying here, that everything, you get yourself to a place where you celebrate the world, and you almost convince yourself that you mean it. But then there's a tree, you just see it, of many, one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. 
What's gone, he can't even say. Something that is gone. Um, there's a great poem by James Wright. Some of you may know or know of Franz Wright, who used to teach here. Um, his father, James Wright, um, I think they're the only father and son Pulitzer Prize winners in poetry. Is that right, Jackson? Yeah. That, yeah. So James Wright has a poem um, which, which has a title I'm not going to get quite right. <laughs> um, it's, that was a joke. See, right, right. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, um, which is something like lying in a hammock and um, he names the friend's farm and um, just watching um, the birds fly. And it's basically just a description of what a beautiful day it is um, and there are clouds and there's sunshine and there are flowers. And then the last line is simply, I have wasted my life. And what's happened is there's a tree. And he looks at the tree and he thinks, not I should have been like that tree, but he's just reminded of being. Simple as that. He's reminded that he's not part of nature, that he lives in a place that is not his own and not himself. And his one last line response to this is, I have wasted my life. It's a reference to a poem of Rilke's, but it's an extraordinarily powerful Poem, a powerful line on its own. I have wasted my life. So Wordsworth similarly says, yes, I get myself worked up and I dance and it's all really good, but then I see this tree. If that tree were in the Garden of Eden, what tree would it be? Yes, the tree of knowledge. That's what he sees. I know that I don't believe what I'm trying to get myself to believe. And it was at this point that he gave up the poem. So the poem did not do for him what he wanted it to do. And he gave it up here. And two years later, it took him two years to get to the next line. And there he tries again and tries to explain and understand what's gone wrong. And he tries to do what he can with his understanding of what's gone wrong. So this poem is doing psychic and psychological work. And it's a poem that between where is it now, the glory and the dream, and the next line, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, two years have passed there, two summers with the length of two long winters. And now he tries again. And he tries to explain it. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, he says. That's an idea from Plato, that when you're born, you forget the realm of the ideal where your soul lived before birth, that with birth comes amnesia. And Wordsworth is getting this from Plato. He's referring to it. The tech, technical name is anagnorosis. Um, that is, that he is forgetting what he once knew. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Um, it suddenly occurs to me that Norton used to um, give a terrible footnote to that, and I just want to check whether they still do. Um, Anyone have the Norton? It would be, I just want to know the page. 1521? Thank 41. you. 
1541. Um, ah, no, but it's a different. All right, do you, um, do you have a note on it? Um, on which one? On um, the soul that rises with us, our life star. Yeah, the sun has a metaphor of Yeah, okay, wrong. Cross it out. That way you can sell it back for more than you paid for it because you will have improved the Norton. <laughs> the soul that rises with us, our life star hath had elsewhere its setting, means that it's not the sun, because the sun sets on our earth as well as rising on our earth. The soul here is the planet Venus, metaphorically. Venus is Lucifer, as you know, the light bearer. That's where Lucifer gets his name in the book of Isaiah. Um, How thou art fallen, Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer or Venus is either, do people know this astronomically? If Venus is the morning star, you will not see it at evening. And if you see Venus at evening as the, as the evening star, you will not see it at morning. Um, it took a while for ancient astronomers to realize they were the same planet or the same star, um, the same heavenly body. But everyone knew that you didn't see both a morning and an evening star on the same day. The reason is that Venus is closer to the sun than we are so that it either rises a little bit before sunrise or it sets a little bit after sunset. But it never does both. It's either does its whole day rising an hour before sunrise and then the sun makes it invisible once the sun rises, or it sets an hour or so after sunset and then it's gone for the rest of the night. You only see it on the horizon. The morning star, the evening star, Venus, will never be overhead. It will always be within 20 degrees or so of the horizon. So the soul that rises with us, our life star, that's Venus as the morning star, as will be obvious in what follows. And it's actually shocking that they still have that, um, that uh, completely inaccurate footnote. I'm shocked. Really, it's just shocking. Um, when I'm president, that footnote will change. So, but listen, so think of it as Venus. Venus is the morning star. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting, not in this world. We don't know where it's set, but we assume then, metaphorically, in this beautiful metaphor, that it's set in heaven, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar. So our soul set in heaven to rise as the morning star with us on earth. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. So this world is not our home. The world that is our home is a world before and beyond this world. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Now, that is why we see celestial light everywhere. He's now explaining what he's lost. And what he says in the first four stanzas is, when you're young, everything is beautiful. And then you lose your sense of that beauty, and that's the sadness of human life. Now what he's saying is everything is beautiful, but not because beauty comes from this world but because it's still in the eye of the beholder, the soul that comes from another and greater world. So we see heaven everywhere in our infancy, but it's because we 
are trailing clouds of glory. So he's giving a different story here. The, first, the story of the first four stanzas is this is what life looks like. Infancy at the top, death at the bottom, me heading towards the bottom, halfway there, age 33 when he's writing it, halfway there towards death. Or possibly you can make it a step function by saying infancy, drop, old age. But that's the story in the first part, the first four stanzas of the poem. Now, he's telling a somewhat different story, which is heaven, then birth, and that's infancy. It's already a drop-off from heaven. And that's where we are now. That not, infancy isn't the best experience we've ever had. It's the experience that we still retain after dropping out of heaven into this world. So it turns out that what looked like the start of things at the beginning of the poem is already a step down. And that's how he's rethinking it. So heaven lies about us in our infancy. Um, shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. But he beholds the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. So even though as young children we are being imprisoned, this is more Blakeian than the first four stanzas, even as young children we are already imprisoned, shades of the prison house of this world are enclosing us, we still see the morning star. We behold the light, and whence it flows, he sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel still is nature's priest. So every day we go towards the west, away from the place of our birth, the place of our rising, the place where Venus rose. And as every day we head towards the west, the occident, which some of you may know, means the place of setting, but also the place of falling. Okitere in Latin means to fall. Every day we head towards that place of falling, the west. And for a while, Venus, which has risen with us, the soul that rises with us, is still visible, as it too is rising. So the youth who daily farther from the east must travel still as nature's priest, and by the vision splendid, that is the vision of Venus, is on his way attended. At length, the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. So the star, Venus, the morning star, our soul, the soul that rises with us, our life star, fades away into the light of common day. Not celestial light, but the everyday light of every of the everyday world. So it's not the sun that is the soul. The sun is what makes the soul fade away. The sun is just regular daylight and not celestial light. Earth, 
who will turn out to be our foster mother, tries to distract us. Earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own, so childhood is fun. Kindergarten, romper room. Yearning she hath in her own natural kind, and even with something of a mother's mind, and no unworthy aim, the homely nurse doth all she can to make her foster child, that's us, her inmate man, inmate as in we live here, we are an inmate of this house, to make her foster child her inmate man, forget the glories he hath known, and that imperial palace whence he came. So childhood is not wonderful because that was the best experience we ever had. It's actually pretty wonderful because we are given distractions from the glory that was ours before birth. And Earth gives us those distractions, gives us those distractions through nature, through beautiful flowers, through lambs, through cataracts, through um, um, sunshine and May mornings, and the culling of flowers on every side. But those aren't the great things. Those are the things that we like, but partly because we think they're great because we know what greatness is. But things that are also earth distracting us from the loss of greatness, the loss of celestial light. So earth tries to make us, with no unworthy aim, earth is sorry for us. Earth tries to make us forget that imperial palace whence we came. Now he says, look at a child. Behold the child among his newborn blisses. That child, by the way, is Coleridge's son, Hartley Coleridge. He has a specific child in mind. It doesn't matter except to know that there is a particular person he's talking about who features in um, a poem of Coleridge's as well um, and who eventually became a minor poet and a very unhappy person. Just telling, just this is the rest of the story. Um, Behold the child among his newborn blisses, a six years darling of a pygmy size. See where mid work of his own hand he lies, fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses with light upon him from his father's eyes. So there's the child, he's playing, his mother's constantly kissing him, he finds it a little bit embarrassing. His father's beaming at him, he's, he's um, building things, he's making drawings, he's cutting out pieces of felt. See at his feet some little planner chart, some fragment from his dream of human life. So there he has this, this, these drawings that he's doing. He's imagining what it will be like to be an adult. That's his dream of human life. Shaped by himself with newly learned art. He's play acting, pretending. A wedding or a festival. A mourning or a funeral. And this hath now his heart, and unto this he frames his song. Then will he fit his tongue to dialogues of business, love, or strife. But it will not be long ere this be thrown aside, and with new joy and pride, the little actor cons another part. So the six-year-old boy is an actor, and he's acting all the parts of human life with great joy and delight. He pretends to be at a wedding or a festival or a mourning or a funeral or being a businessman um, or being a lover or being a fighter, dialogues of business, love, or strife. He loves it all. 
filling from time to time his humorous stage. That's a phrase from the um, Elizabethan poet um, Samuel Daniel, filling from time to time his humorous stage with all the persons down to palsied age that life brings with her in her equipage, as if his whole vocation were endless imitation. So there's a six-year-old boy, and among the things he's doing is he's saying, oh, I'm an old man, and he's a six-year-old boy, enjoying play-acting, pretend-playing an old man. Um, everything that he sees, the entire adult world, he play-acts, and partly it's that he doesn't feel implicated by that. He's six. What does that have to do with him in reality? And then he addresses, Wordsworth addresses the boy, and says, Thou! to the boy, thou whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's immensity. So you're just a little child, but your soul is immense. Thou best philosopher, <coughs> who yet dost keep thy heritage. Thou eye among the blind, you still see the light and whence it flows. You still have some relation to the prenatal world, the pre-material world. Thou eye among the blind, the deaf and silent, reads the eternal deep, haunted forever by the eternal mind. Mighty prophet, seer, blessed, on whom those truths do rest that which we adults are toiling all our lives to find. In darkness lost, the darkness of the grave, thou still addressing the child, thou over whom thy immortality broods like the day, a master or a slave, a presence which is not to be put by, thou little child, yet glorious in the might of heaven-born freedom on thy being's height. So this child has everything. He's so close to heaven, the heaven lying about him in his infancy. And Wordsworth addresses him and asks, why with such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife? So why are you so blindly at strife with your own blessedness? Why do you want to be an adult when you are so close to blessedness? Why do you like this world why are you so blindly committed to a world that we adults know is a world of darkness, the darkness of the grave? Full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight, and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. So soon enough, you'll be oppressed by adulthood. Soon enough, you will graduate and see what it's really like. Oh, sorry, guys. And then Wordsworth does a remarkable turn, a shocking turn. This extremely depressing conclusion to that stanza leads him in the next stanza to say, oh, joy. And you should give that its full weight of strangeness, that he would turn this extraordinarily depressing prophecy for what will happen to the child, a prophecy based on what has happened to him. There was a time 
when I, too, saw Meadow Grove and stream the earth in every common sight, apparelled in celestial light. And look what happened to me, and it's going to happen to you. And it's all terrible. And life is terrible, and we just keep going down, down, down to the darkness of the grave. So, how then do we get to joy? That's the crucial question. Oh, joy that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. So what he's saying, and this is really the crucial turn in the poem, is that when he sees what the child is losing and feels so intensely what the child is losing, he becomes aware that he still can remember it. That knowing how much the child is losing means that he knows what the child is losing. It's not entirely gone. And that for him is occasion for joy. It's a joy like the sublime. And here I'll just give you the, a one-line description of what this poem does and what romantic poems in general do poems of English Romanticism, is they notice that life is an experience of losing intensity. That the older you get, the more you lose intensity. And what they try to do is turn the loss of intensity into the intensity of loss. If you can lose so much, then your loss is intense. And so the loss of intensity becomes itself a kind of shadow intensity. The loss of intensity becomes itself intensity. And that's a version of the sublime, which we were talking about in Milton. That is, that it is not an experience of pleasure, but it's an experience of exalting distress, exalting despair because it shows you your depths and just seeing those depths within the self, the child doesn't see it the child lives in those depths, is perfectly comfortable there, has no experience of depth, but the adult, seeing the loss of those depths experiences the intensity, the deep intensity of the loss of depth experiences the depth of the loss of depth. So, oh joy that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. The thought of our past years in me, and then this is, let this be as strange as it is. The thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction. Remember earlier he had called upon the blessed creatures. I have heard the call that ye to each other make. They're blessed, but now he's blessing again, and yet this blessing is very different. The thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction, that is blessing, not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed. It's not like, yay, I bless things that should be blessed. No, Wordsworth is saying I bless things, but not what should be blessed. Things like delight and liberty, the simple creed of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged <coughs> hope still fluttering in his breast. 
That's not what I'm blessing, he says. Not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise. No, what I am blessing is those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things, fallings from us, vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. So hang on, there uh, you were hanging on to the word blank from Milton, and for the Book of Knowledge Fair presented with a universal blank, Wurzer's use of blank is even greater than that. Blank misgivings. I praise the fact that there was a tree of many one, a single field that I have looked upon. I praise the blank misgivings, the strange, free folk, free form um, of alienation that I feel. The blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. High instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. So it's my guilt itself that shows me that somehow I feel guilty about being an adult, being someone like ourselves, to go back to Aristotle. And that causes me to feel benediction because I tremble like a guilty thing surprised. My benediction is for those first affections, those shadowy recollections, which, be they what they may, wherever they come from, he doesn't necessarily believe in this life before birth, but wherever they come from, are yet the fountain light of all our day, are yet a master light of all our seeing, uphold us, cherish, and have power to make our noisy ears see moments in the being of the eternal silence, truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness, which is how he started, nor mad endeavor, which is how he tried to get himself um, all over his own depression, nor man, nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy can utterly abolish or destroy. So that's what I'm praising, those embers. Hence, in a season of calm weather, though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. So the memory of what I've lost, I can still recall. And so we're back. It's still the same May day in the poem. And he returns to the birds and says, okay then, sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song and let the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound. We in thought will join your throng in thought. Ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May. What though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight? His version of Milton's blindness. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. In the primal sympathy, which having been, must ever be. In the soothing thoughts, and hang, just hear this, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering. Soothing thoughts spring out of human suffering. In the faith that looks through death and years that bring the philosophic mind. And oh, ye fountains, meadows, hills, and groves, forebode not any severing of our loves. Yet in my heart of hearts I feel your might. I only have relinquished one delight to live beneath your more habitual sway, I love the brooks which down their channels fret even more than when I tripped lightly as they. 
my love is increased. The innocent brightness of a newborn day is lovely yet. The clouds that gather around the setting suns, you take a sober coloring from an eye that hath kept watch or man's mortality. Another race hath been and other palms are won. Thanks to the human heart by which we live. Thanks to its tenderness, its joys and fears. To me, the meanest flower, the pansy at my feet. To me, the meanest flower that blows, that is, that blooms, can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. So I lose joy, but I gain depth. That's the trade. And he is partly saying that depth means thinking that's a good trade. That going from happiness to tragedy gets you to a greater intensity than the intensity you've lost. That's the crisis, and that's the attempt to resolve the crisis in this poem. Saying how grim things are can be a way of coping with how grim things are, finding something to make out of that grimness, which is an apprehension of how grim it is. Okay, we will look at Shelley on Wednesday, and Shelley in part as a response to Wordsworth, but start reading Jane Eyre. Um, I'll tell you what part, if you have the Norton, what part of um, the Shelley reading to do. You don't have to do it all, but what part to do for Wednesday. Yes. Yeah. And remember, if you don't have your paper and you're here, pick it up. <laughs>